Welcome to Phrenesis, a show dedicated to issues in political philosophy. Each episode will take a close look at important essays and ideas in political and social thought, linking them to historical and contemporary debates, which is to say, finding where they are discussed in the footnotes to Plato. Well, welcome again to another episode of the Phrenesis podcast, as always. Uh, I'm Brad Davis, and joining me is William Lombardo. Tonight, we have a very special guest. I'm really excited. We have Michael Granke, a, a tutor at St. John's College, uh, joining us both to uh, discuss in part uh, Nietzsche's uh, genealogy of uh, morality, but also uh, to discuss uh, Lise von Boxel's uh, recently released work, uh, War Speak, to which he, he, uh, for which he wrote the introduction. Um, so would, would you uh, be willing, sort of, for starters, to, to give us uh, a bit of an overview of both uh, Lise von Boxel and, and her, her work and the, the process of how War Speak came, came together? Sure. Um, so... Lisa's uh, born a Canadian in a nickel mining town in Upper Upper Ontario and uh, went to the University of Toronto as an undergraduate and got a master's degree afterwards in political philosophy at Boston College and then a PhD again from the University of Toronto. Uh, This book, Warspeak, came about uh, after a long sort of development and um, a kind of transformative revision of her dissertation work, which was uh, centered itself on the genealogy of morals, but not quite as thorough or as comprehensive a a reading of the genealogy of morals. Her dissertation really focused on an attempt to try to show that there was, despite the distinction Nietzsche makes in the genealogy of morals between master and slave morality, that there was really one model, one ideal of humanity that was recognized and appreciated by both. That is that there was a single human consensus as to what the human good was. And that was uh, the the work of her dissertation. Now, Warsby came into being, as I said, through an extensive revision of that work, particularly, I think, paying more careful attention to the uh, evolutionary or genealogical aspects of Nietzsche's work and uh, of the world. And I think through picking up a lot more carefully on details in, in Nietzsche's writing to, that led to a sort of different story, not, not that her original uh, insight into the genealogy was to be put aside, but it wasn't entirely of itself the central concern, and it wasn't uh, certainly didn't present the answer that uh, Lise was looking for. So Warspeak is meant, I think, to be a very careful reading of the genealogy with a kind of selective presentation. And it takes very small details that many people would tend to ignore, like uh, details that Nietzsche tells us in the preface, a story about his own 13-year-old efforts to solve the problem of evil. And Lee notes some things that Nietzsche says about that and actually makes a, a, a series of of insights that pay off over time in a, in a way that produces almost a, a hermeneutic all by itself of recognizing a certain kind of moral theological prejudice and the benefits of 
being able to separate the moral prejudices from the theological prejudices, but also just the prevalence of seeing both of them entangled and how much they are embodied in the opinions that we find in the world. And it also traces, especially, I think, the, the very important question that Nietzsche is pursuing in the third essay of the genealogy of morals, which is the, what, what is the meaning of the ascetic ideal? I think Warspeak basically understands, I think, the central problem of Nietzsche's philosophy and probably one of the biggest, if not simply the biggest spiritual or intellectual problem that human beings face in modernity to be what people are familiar with as nihilism, but it traces nihilism to a particular form that is a kind of weariness with the world that despairs of any possible human future. And that weariness is understood to be the product of a less than open psychological war against this world and this worldly possibilities, uh, particularly. So the ascetic ideal takes the form of embracing the model of another world, the afterworld, where all the beings are unchanging and the same always, if, where time is not a non-factor. So it's essentially a world of unchanging eternity. And it measures all the, the beings of this world that change and come into being and perish against the standard of things that are always and that never perish and never change. And that's a way of depreciating the value of this world. And it leads to a kind of over time, over a couple millennia of being promulgated, it leads to a, a world weariness that makes human beings attach their will even to the project of nothingness. The last part of the book is, is an attempt to try to derive from what Nietzsche shows, especially in the third essay, an affirmative, this-worldly ideal that could serve as a counter-ideal, a positive and affirmative ideal of this world and human possibilities within this world that could counteract uh, the, the previously enacted psychological war. Maybe that's enough to start. Yeah, that, that's a great start. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I, I haven't had enough time to, to fully digest uh, everything in war speak yet, but I really did joy uh reading through it one of the things that struck me uh the most is in approaching the genie of genealogy of morals for the first time or or similar works and i think some of the treatment of, uh some of the works treatment and scholarship also does this i i have a sense of, of considering the word genealogy as, as somewhat synonymous to historical and looking at a, a, a build up to where we are at this moment of time um, it, it seems like history of, of morals could be could be just as well but but something I found really interesting in war speak was how the extent to which some of these things seem to be much more dynamic and are building towards it a, a future uh the the sense of, of genealogy um in part true being the history that has gotten us uh to this point in the present uh but also the trajectory that sets us up uh for in the future and, and how how future uh evolution or, or change might occur and so that that i really appreciated yeah i i when i, I think uh 
before reading War Speak, the 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 definition of genealogy that I had, which seems to predominate, um, is the the one that Foucault gives in his famous essay on the genealogy, um, which is something like uncovering the dirty origins of something that the practitioners can't acknowledge. Um, and, and that seems to be the, the, the dominant definition of genealogy that, that we inherit. Um, and, and to some extent, I think that's what's, what Nietzsche is doing. But that's not the definition of genealogy uh, we, we get in war speak. And, and I, was, I was wondering um, uh, whether you could elaborate on how, how, uh, how Lisa's definition of genealogy differs from... Um, I think what what we tend to uh, think of, or the definition we tend to give when we hear that word, because she offers a really provocative redefinition. Well, I think uh, in in one direct sense, I think this offers, and we're speaking etymological definition in in, in the literal sense in the book, uh, that is that genealogy is a, a logos or an account of the the coming into being of things, of their descent, right? But Maybe I'd just point to a couple of things and then swing it immediately back to how Lise handles it. Uh, I think the title Human All to Human in, in Nietzsche's earlier book has uh, an attempt to try first to destabilize uh, ideals in the world by revealing their human all to human origin. And that's the, the dirty origins, the low the high is derived from the low. And so once you show that something comes from human, merely human sources, it is debunked in the world. But that's pr primarily because uh, the world had been inclined to believe that a number of the beings that are here derive from things better than or higher than this world and human beings. The, so the phrase human all to human in some way is connected to the notion of genealogy in that book, I think Nietzsche starts with the thought that you could debunk the values of the world by showing their human origins. But once you really absorb that thought and you see a, a thoroughgoing human origin for the things that are valued in the world, it no longer becomes a, a black mark or, or some kind of denigration to point to human origins. And that also, that frees one toward future projects that I think, um, would approach human making and human production uh, in its innocently without guilt, without a sense that it was a low thing. I would also probably point out the, the fifth main part of Beyond Good and Evil is entitled Toward a Natural History of Morality. Natural history is another kind of synonym for genealogy probably. And one could understand that and that term in the modern sense, not in the ancient Greek sense as to inquiry into nature, but in the modern sense is telling the story of the uh, inherited descent of things. That is, that everything that exists today is a descendant of something that previously existed with some kinds of modifications. I, I probably not just limited to organic or biological beings, but everything in the world is some kind of modification of potentials that existed before. Right? So in that sense, I think Lise pursues the genealogical method and he really tries to give accounts that read the passages in Nietzsche as stories of evolution 
of sequences of how one kind of being comes out comes to be out of previous ancestors. And I think the the maybe the most impressive thing in in that she does in this line in War Speak is to try to sketch a evolutionary history of the type of the of philosopher. Right? To try to show a, a sequence of different forms that philosophy assumed over time and what they how they built upon one another. Maybe the other thing that she does is she takes the list of human types that have a different relation to the ascetic ideal for whom the ascetic ideal means something differently, which is presented by Nietzsche right at the beginning of the third essay of genealogy of morals. And she weaves together a kind of derivation of each of those powers that are, that are ensconced in the meaning that the ascetic ideal had for these previous human types and suggests a comprehensive human being who could put together the hidden and affirming aspects of of those particular relations to the ascetic ideal. Maybe the last thing I'd say about this is when in War Speak, when Lise uses the term evolution, she's not not really um I I think this is true of every sense she uses it in. She's not committing to a particular account of how things change. It's not a, a, a commitment to the theory of natural selection or something like this or Lamarckian aspects or anything like that. It's an image of progress. That is the evolved things are progressions. They're supposed that's the trajectory that she sees, I think, in in within genealogy as a possibility. That is that the descended forms that are modified can be better forms. They can be improved. So it goes back probably to uh this used to be I think a popular term maybe back when social darwinism was something people still talked about devolution would be really the opposite term there's evolution or there's decay and we we keep using uh we've been using these kind of evaluative words so you know a, a, a evolution is a a progression and an improvement um which uh I I think the the first thing that uh uh I don't know if casual is the word, but some readers of Nietzsche might say is uh, that runs against what we'd call his perspectivism uh, or, um, you know, his uh, there are no facts, only interpretations. Uh, and and, uh, you know, he he seems to resist um, uh, naming better and worse. But however, war speaks as absolutely not to that interpretation. In fact, Nietzsche does recognize a better, uh, um, and, uh, that it's not, it seems not even, uh, something that, uh, well, I don't know. Does he subject it to his own perspectivism that, uh, or, um, but, but regardless, it's not a kind of equality or arbitrariness of all values or, or something. There's a, um, he, he, uh, he identifies a supreme good rooted in, I assume we'll talk to the, the, the will to power um, also given a unique interpretation, but, um, but that seems unique to me too. Well, I mean, I think you sketch a, how would I say um, one vein of Nietzsche and scholarship or one vein of Nietzsche interpretation. And I think, as you know, um, there are a lot, I, I've got uh, literally several hundred books about Nietzsche on my bookshelf. Um, and they make all sorts of arguments uh, about him. Nietzsche, the ecologist, 
or you know, in this case, Nietzsche the egalitarian, because all perspectives, in, in a way, saying that everything is perspective is understood to be a foundation for saying that everyone is equal. I I think Nietzsche is himself fairly open about um, preferring some things to others, and the the end of proclaiming some some human types um, better than others. The problem I think that maybe opens up is whether he has grounds to make those claims or on what grounds can he make those claims if one understands his foundation to be perspectival. Maybe I just start with the perspectivism, the the, the ubiquity of perspectivism. Nietzsche in one way, in the genealogy, he says this pretty literally, and it's it's the most um, materialistic version. It's like a problem in optics. Can you imagine an eye that isn't looking in some direction? That is, because in a way, how things look, how the world appears to uh, beings that are somewhere is different than how the world appears to beings that are elsewhere. But I think Nietzsche actually, when he, that's the really kind of materialistic thought, and it's not adequate to what he has in mind. By perspective, he generally refers, and even in that passage, I think he refers to affects as being eyes. That is, our particular, uh, how would I say, positive contribution to the world as, as active beings that shape the world constitutes our perspectives. And in, in each of us perhaps has many to the extent to which each of us has many drives or parts or emotions that color the world. I mean, you probably, in some ways you could say you only encounter the fearsome when you're afraid, but that's the way in which some aspect of the world appears differently to beings that are in different uh, moods or situations. So I, I think the solution that least tends to adopt in the book, and I think that Nietzsche adopts in a variety of places, is a notion that there are um, intrinsically higher and lower perspectives. There are things that he calls frog perspectives or provisional perspectives or corner perspectives, nook perspectives, which are generally to be understood as inferior in their narrowness. And the superior perspectives are are sketched out as being comprehensive. So I think of the beings that are thought of as being higher are founded upon their comprehending those beings that are lower, containing within themselves the perspectives of these lower lower beings and more. So that, I mean, that's a, in a way that's a kind of a almost mathematical argument. More is better. And so another um, really interesting idea that that least uh takes a good bit of time to to try and develop is uh that of uh, a physiopsychology um and so you you mentioned that um this sort of genealogy isn't really one pushing towards some sort of social darwinism some sort of uh lamarckism but is it pushing to some sort of um Physiopsychological imperative. Can you can you help us understand what what that term means and and what is it that, as I understand it, this not just the amalgamation of drives, but but all these things together. What is it pushing us towards? 
it follows from things that you might find, for instance, in Thus Spoke Zarathustra, where in the pithy little phrase, Zarathustra says, the soul is just the name for something, something about the body. But I don't think that means a, a material reductionism of the soul, but rather the thought that the, the dualism is unsupportable. And I, I think particularly maybe the, the strongest way to try to see that is to see all the, the various difficulties that dualistic thinkers run into when they try to insist that mind and body are, are truly different in kind, and yet they are connected. You have to do things like invent glands that mirror metaphysical motions without causality connecting them. Things, things of that sort, or, or mediating spirits of some sort. But to the extent to which Nietzsche is seeking to accept this world in its this-worldly character, I think he sends every pretension that would associate mind with a, a different kind, with a difference in kind, is damaging to the attempt to affirm the world as it is. Mind is manifestly involved with body. Um, when we're sick, things happen to our minds. When we're sad, things happen to our bodies. And the phrase, that I, the physiopsychology, I think that Lise really embraces here is that some attempt to wean us off the dualism. There's a lot of passages in Warspeak and some really nice ones to try to show the problem with asserting that there are are cardinal differences or that there are differences in kind. Um, and I think maybe one of the strongest ones tries to show that if you are to have the basis to compare any two things with one another and therefore to make judgments about them or even to make distinctions among them, they have to have something in common. They have to have differences of degree. Differences of kind really are nothing other than whole, holy othernesses or something like that. So either you're playing around and pretending that you can take things in themselves and in, into your mind and describe their properties and compare them, or you, you have to come, come back, I think, to some sense that there's, there's one world in which we live in. It's unified by a kind of um, contiguity of things so that nothing is wholly different from anything else. And there's a pathway from any one of them to another, including, you know, pathway from the things that we might think are most simply body to things that we think are the most highly developed mental capacities we could consider. You know, this, this also leads to thoughts in Nietzsche, like Socrates daimon might be an earache or Jesus has neurological problems. That's why he's so inclined to speak in these sort of metaphorical terms. He's undergoing some kind of psychic rejection of all the pain in his nerves, things like this. I mean, they can seem like they're very low, but in a certain way, I think Nietzsche wants to, you to reconsider how important the body is uh, you, and to think about it as something that can think. For instance, maybe one could say this. This, I think, is in Aristotle's De Anima. Um, thought is a motion of a certain kind of body. That might be a, one way to say body and mind really can't be taken apart from one another. Now, 
where is it going? That was the, <laughs> the question. And that, in a way, was the payoff question. Well, there I thought uh, maybe Lisa's dissertation work really asserts itself. There's really one common aspiration that, in principle, all human beings are shown to admire and seek. It has, uh, I think, at least tries to um, be careful about how to describe it. It has a kind of formal character. She names it superabundant vitality. But she, I think she's very insistent that it doesn't have an independent formal existence. So there is no formland if one wants to think about some of the, the um, more uh, theological interpretations of Plato. There's no formland. Form would still be something of our mind, some kind of thought. But there is a persistent form of human excellence and human fulfillment, which is superabundant vitality. And then in every meaningful way, one seeks that in concrete exemplars, that is, in human beings that are themselves um, flourishing in the world. I, I would probably say particularly human beings that find themselves in situations of some measure of mastery of both their, their selves to the extent to which they have internal tensions and superior to their present circumstances. Uh, the, this probably, in, I think, as a, a goal, maybe not a telos, but a goal, it, it presents itself as a project of uh, unlimited growth. Uh, we don't know enough to know where it, where where the possibilities of development might stop, and in terms of our interests, the drives in us want to express themselves as much as they possibly can, and uh, and wish to um, to the extent to which they in, are involved in intelligence, they wish to be formed in such a way that they can express themselves more and more. Use the phrase affirming the the world and uh least uses that and also affirming life um <clears throat> now i i I know he doesn't mean it in the sense of uh affirming the currently dominant uh social modes or way of life um you know in, in the sense that say like hegel tries to tries to affirm the reigning conditions uh and and that maybe except at the very beginning, it was never true that affirming life meant affirming most of what you see around you. So what are you affirming then when you're affirming the world or uh, affirming life if you seem so alienated from, uh, you know, uh, the society you find yourself in, other people, uh, culture? Yeah, I think... The... I might have to speak for myself a little more on, on this than just try to say what I thought least least thought, but the doctrine that gets known by the name of the eternal return of the same is, I, I think, the where Nietzsche primarily presents his most affirmative thoughts, and uh, 
that is in a way saying presented as saying yes to everything or loving fate. But I think in the careful presentations, like in um, say section 56 of beyond good and evil or something like that, there are, there's detailed care. I think that indicates what you need to affirm is about the past. And, and there, when I would say, what is the world? It's everything that you're aware of. That is, it's every aspect of your awareness is some aspect of something you care about. It, even the things that seem to be um, indifferent to you or unimportant, tiny and small, to the extent to which they've actually become a part of your awareness, you have a care about them. So Affirming the world in some ways, affirming the world of your care. The, sometimes the phrase is the world that um, matters to us or the world that's of concern to us. Uh, das un, uh, uns angeht, the world that goes into us. That means, I think, that Nietzsche, for Nietzsche, affirming the world is really affirming yourself. And it's about your past self. It's about where you find yourself. Although, you'll, you know, tomorrow you'll have more of a more past self again. It's where you find yourself. In, you've inherited something from your past. And it has, pos it has lingering power over your future possibilities. In some ways, it determines what you can do in the immediate future. Maybe not what can be done far down the road, but what can be done now. And in order to have maximal access to the resources you've inherited you have to embrace them as yours you can't reject them you can't deny them and you also can't go backwards in time and try to fix them the way people often do when they carry the burden of the past with them so it's both i think affirming is an affirming of yourself your past self as you've inherited it as the determiner of your future possibilities. And Nietzsche really does propose that it should be a total affirmation, that you not reject any part, because rejection is, is akin to regret. And it's akin to either just being wasteful with the resources the world has left you, or burdening yourself unnecessarily with a past that will continue to have negative effects on your future possibilities. That's what I, I guess I want to say about affirmation. <laughs> right, right. Well, maybe a, the thing to really say that's a corollary to that is it doesn't determine your future. Affirming the past doesn't say what I did yesterday, I have to do again today. It doesn't say, I mean, this is where people, I think, spin out with some of Nietzsche's metaphors or something like this about eternally repeating. It, it seems that's a... That is an image when Nietzsche talks about, would you will this world as it has occurred exactly in all of its details to be repeated eternally again? I think that's still just about the past. It's not determining what happens next. It's whether you fully accept all of the past and are willing to make use of it as the resources you have in order to build your future. Right, because, well, one of the worst in the genealogy, especially one of the worst f forms a person can take for Nietzsche is being a person of ressentment of, uh, of which, which, uh, Lisa interprets something like envy, um, as well. Um, but there's a way that you can experience 
uh, well, if you interpret it as envy, maybe not so much, but if it's kind of an angry desire for revenge, it's something that I think can also be directed toward the past uh, and that can be stultifying. Um, that, yeah, and you, you mentioned the, um, the eternal return or eternal, eternal recurrence, um, which, uh, and this might be a good segue into focusing on the third uh, treatise specifically, um, uh, when she gets to the third treatise uh, in the manner that you mentioned where these lines that seem almost like throwaway lines uh, she uh, she sees great importance in, uh, Nietzsche asks uh, not rhetorical questions, but he he says, am I understood? Have I been understood? And then he says, no, I have not been. Um, but it, the, the tenses of those two questions change. Uh, and in the second, uh, he, uh, he, referring to what I have said in the past, Lisa sees that as he's about to treat the same thing from a different angle that he has in the first two treatises. Um, but also that this some that this third treatise especially somehow represents the uh, you know culmination of of his teachings. Uh, and one of the things that I thought was interesting is it doesn't make uh, um, any reference to the eternal recurrence uh, of the same, um, which I I know has to be intentional, uh, and I don't know I don't know uh, what to what to make of what to, what to make of that. But th- those are that's a really uh, provocative claim about about a third one, uh, 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 the, the third treatise especially. No, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think that even the passage you so the very first section of the third essay of of the genealogy of morals, um, I think at least presents it as containing Nietzsche's philosophy in a kind of nutshell. I think she calls it a, 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 with the density of a diamond or diamond-like density. And I think she even re- she even regards that have I been understood as a, a potentially a reference to more than just the two previous essays, but to Nietzsche's whole previous uh, publications. So there's there's i mean the whole book in a way argues i think for uh, centrality of the genealogy of morals but i think you you're right to say that in in no explicit way at least does the uh, idea of the eternal return present itself i do think the problem in the third essay of a world affirming counter ideal to the ascetic ideal is a kind of parallel. And probably what I would also say is there's a point in which Lies picks up on Nietzsche raising the question of the meaning of seriousness. So the essay is pursuing the, the question, the open question of the meaning of the ascetic ideal. And then in in seemingly in passing, Nietzsche mentions the question of the meaning of seriousness and promises to come back to that. And I think in in Lisa's explication, that's a way in which one really gets at, I I think, the affirmative ideal is to see what is the meaning of the question? What is is the meaning of seriousness? I I could say something about this in a way. um, Lisa's book 
pays attention to the fact, I think, that the third essay has an, uh, an aphorism from Thus Spoke Zarathustra attached to it. And of course, many people have paid attention to this both in amazing ways that sometimes deny that it is an aphorism or that that's the aphorism Nietzsche is referring to, which is the most incredible reading, I, I think, not, not, not incredible in a good sense. Um, <laughs> which I just, it's amazing, but Nietzsche leads us, all of us, to many strange places. But it's, that aphorism is an excerpt from the uh, section of Zarathustra called On Reading and Writing. Right. And I think part of a very large part of uh, the project in War Speak is to indicate that a certain kind of interpretive way of reading is a kind of writing, and that a rewriting of the accounts that are given in the world, I mean, that are have been conventionally, in a way, inculcated by the influence of the ascetic ideal, needs to be done in order to turn things around. So there's a lot of rewriting that goes on, including many, I think, very playful things that Lise does to try to show, for instance, there are ways in which there are transcendence in this world or there's spontaneous um, causation, creation ex nihilo, things like this, in a way uh, that's all very playful. But the the thing that I note, if you go to Zarathustra and read on reading and writing, it's a tale about writing in blood, which I take to be, again, some kind of pointing to the union of, of mind and body. And it starts with that sort of earthy element of writing in blood, but it moves from writing in blood to writing in blood and aphorisms. And then it extols the virtues of aphorisms in terms of them uh, how I say, being suited to human beings that are tall and grown high and that have long legs and can step from aphorism to aphorism. This leads to extolling the virtues of courage and warrior virtues, all of which tend to attend something like notions of danger that attend, danger and solitude that attend human elevation. And the elevation of the human progresses in that path, in that speech of Zarathustra from the sprightly sort of mountain hopping that long-legged human beings might do with aphorism to aphorism with none of the explanatory accounts in between, all the way up to images of the freedom of flight. So the happiness Nietzsche indicates, I think, um, soap bubbles and butterflies no more of happiness, right, than human beings tend to do. And he also includes human beings who are like them, no more. It moves to a, a, a kind of culminating passage for me that's where Zarathustra says, I've learned to walk, now I let myself run. I've learned to fly, and I do not want to, to move. I'm sorry, I do not want to be pushed to move until I am ready. There, I think, Zarathustra is announcing a kind of freedom that belongs to a flight that's elevated. It's um, self-moving, which is, I think, meant to be a description of a psychology that's not based upon lack, but based upon fullness. Right? And that would be an image of a a life-affirming position, frankly, that probably doesn't have to 
do a lot of reaffirming of the past just because of its present fullness and capacity. It's not oppressed. It's a position or a, an image of life that rejects the claim that also occurs in Zarathustra on reading and writing, which people say, this is a quote, a proverb that Zarathustra mentions that people say, they say that life is heavy. It's hard to carry or more loosely translated, life is difficult, but schwerer. Life, life has gravitational weight that's hard to carry, but not for people who can fly. They don't suffer that way. And so there's an image of freedom that indicates a condition human beings could come to be in where they would move when they wanted to, not because they're missing something or lacking something and therefore imposed upon from without, but only because they had internal urges to do something. And I, I think that's the direction in which maybe the affirmative ideal takes in, in Lisa's work. And Lee seems to see a, a role for comedy and laughter in doing this, because I, I believe uh, when he, he talks about life, life being heavy, later on he talks about laughing at the force of gravity, and, and Zarathustra, Zarathustra laughs, uh, right, and he laughs a lot um, in, you know, in comparison to... Uh, in, you know, intentionally, I assume Jesus never laughs. Plato's Socrates never laughs. Um, and, um, and there, there's something, um, just uh, you know, wondering if, uh, you could touch on about how, how seriousness reinforces the ascetic ideal, um, in a sense that, that serious, that, you know, being ascetic and serious are kind of, you know, loose terminological cousins, it seems like, um, you know, but there's something about being prohibited from being, you know, uh, playful or, 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 or laughing that almost that, I don't want to say ironic approach to things, but is a way of breaking, or but maybe ironic is a way of breaking, breaking, uh, breaking loose from the ascetic ideal. So I, I, you remind me again in Zarathustra on reading and writing, um, the spirit of gravity is said to be the, that by means of which everything falls. Right. And, I think there, and, and laughter is pre prescribed by Zarathustra as the way in which you would kill the spirit of gravity, kill them, by, kill it by laughter, not not by anger. Uh, the the position I think that's called seriousness, if I could put it that way, because I tend to think, uh, although Nietzsche laughs a lot and seems to do many things to delight himself. It's hard to say he's not serious about a lot of things. Um, but the position I think that's, a, that's presented as the spirit of gravity would be a seriousness that's external to you, that's imposed upon you. And I think the, the image is ascetic in this particular sense. The, the pretensions of those who claim things are serious matters that don't allow you to laugh at them is that the, the seriousness is an intrinsic quality of those external beings. So if you're not serious in the face of something that carries with it an, an intrinsic quality of serious, you're in the wrong. Right? You're laughing when it's not permitted to laugh or something like this. And, and also there's, to the extent to which that intrinsic quality would have authority, um, you you are a, a defective kind of being if you don't 
accept and the seriousness and behave accordingly. But I thought the the position that Nietzsche tries to consider is that all those claims about ser- the intrinsic seriousness of things are, are dependent upon some sense that there's another world that lends them this quality. If we understand the value of things to be given to them by us, by our own valuing, then we can be serious about things when we want to be and because we want to be. As we could find the source of seriousness in ourselves. Now, one could I think one could worry about whether an intellectual conscience allows you to treat something seriously if the only basis for its seriousness is your seriousness. And also, I think lurking in the back of the sense that we would, we ourselves would be the source of seriousness would be some worry that we couldn't fully be serious about things that we thought were based only upon something in us, for instance, uh, our will. On the other hand, I, I, I would be inclined to say, you know, why wouldn't we be serious about ourselves and the things that we care care about unapologetically? I mean, it it takes some kind of uh, habituation and training to make us doubt the value of our own longings and our own loves, such that we would worry whether those inclinations justify taking something seriously. Yeah, so I, I take this, the, the spirit of gravity that's really to be killed is not to take seriousness wholly out of the human condition or something like this, but it makes up seriousness uh, something that's more uh, recognized as coming from us and therefore being at our disposal. And it also allows you um, over time to, without guilt, I think, to abandon your seriousness in some things when you have moved past them. This is, you know, so there's this sense uh, it's repeated in on reading and writing, and it's also in in Beyond Good and Evil that the tragic, for instance, doesn't look tragic to beings of a of a sufficient elevation. On a on a slightly different uh, tack, I was hoping you might be able to walk through with us the relationship between, let, let's say, uh, asceticism and wisdom, and it, it seems like there's two different at times converging, at times diverging paths going through this third essay. The The title of the essay, again, is, is what is the meaning of ascetic ideals? And that's that's a question throughout. Um, but as we also mentioned, uh, it, it starts with an aphorism from Thus, Sparks, Thus Spoke Zarathustra. And I don't think we read it in a whole yet. Um, so I will, apologies if this is a repetition, listeners, but Unconcerned, mocking, violent, thus wisdom wants us. She is a woman and always loves only a warrior. And you you had discussed um, in the, the section from which it comes on reading and writing uh, various sort of warrior characteristics and aspects of Nietzsche's treatment of, of uh, perhaps warrior virtues uh, in, in this aspect of the thus book Zarathustra. Throughout this third essay in, in the genealogy, we see repeated references uh, to women. Uh, 
which uh, in this aphorism is equated to to wisdom. Uh, and oftentimes Nietzsche's discussion is such of uh, women as a means. Uh he, he discusses that in several different ways, um, both in, in terms of art, uh, I, I think probably in uh, relation to, to the Genesis narrative, talks about um, means uh, the instrument of the devil, um, and also a, as a means of creation, a, of new possibility and, and, and future. So I'm sorry, that that's a, 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 lot, a lot to sort of work off there <laughs> but uh what what is wisdom as a means if that's a, a proper interpretation of what Nietzsche is going for here and, and what's the way that asceticism interplays um with what it is that wisdom is seeking well yeah I I think uh I just <laughs> I just noticed I think that that Quotation from Zarathustra drops one adjective from the actual presentation in Zarathustra, or one uh, not one characteristic. So we've got un, unconcerned, mocking, and, and violent. But right before it, um, in Zarathustra, it says courageous. I'm just trying to <laughs> figure out why that dropped. But um, since I, I'm just trying to figure it out, I probably don't have a lot to say. Um, maybe the way to begin to look at this passage is to see the way it frames um, the approach to wisdom as an erotic condition. And the, the preface to beyond good and evil, you know, it says supposing truth is a woman. And then it goes on to explain why previous philosophers have been incredibly awkward and gruesome courtiers who've approached truth and in just the wrong ways to have a successful erotic campaign. This, this uh, aphorism from Zarathustra presents not the actions of the courtier or not the actions of the suitor, but the preferences of the woman as the determining factor. And the, that I think is, is particularly interesting, but I think in the context that I, where it occurs, it it indicates, I think, that there are things that come together in in men of war or warriors, like being um, in what people would consider to be very serious situations, but being very playful about them, in the, or or mock mocking or carefree, unconcerned. At the same time that they're perhaps violent in the most extreme ways. And Gewaltig is a, a strong term in German, I would say. It's a term that's sometimes associated with rape, for instance. So the, the juxtaposition of things that seem not to be capable of being put together, which I think would belong to a free human being that was of a significant elevation to be able to laugh at serious things that other people regarded as serious or laugh at the demands of con conventional uh, boundaries and conventional moralities. 
I think Nietzsche's pointing out that they actually do in some way come together in men of war. And so that there's something about the warrior spirit itself that is appropriate to the pursuit of wisdom. That is, wisdom would be welcoming to such a suitor. And that seems to me uh, to track pretty well with the example uh, he gives in this essay of, of Wagner's development, that there's both a certain asceticism and a certain sensuality present in his early works, that something is respectful about that that isn't uh, in the later works. And, and it, it seems like Per, perhaps it's, it's that warrior sense that um, asceticism out of necessity uh, on campaign, um, passion out of, out of necessity is very different from asceticism as a longed for ideal. In, in one way, I think, I think this is true of the third essay for Nietzsche. He presents a whole series of human beings whose interest in or attraction to the ascetic ideal is different, each of them. But what gets revealed, I think, is that it looks like there's all of these human beings who are attracted to and in some way embrace the ascetic ideal are in some way denying life. They're denying themselves something. You know, they, they don't go to town and live it up, but they're restricting themselves. They don't eat the, the pleasurable foods. They don't hang out with the pleasurable company. They, they deny themselves all sorts of natural urges in the world. So it looks like they're denying life itself. But at a certain point in the, in the third essay, Nietzsche announces that that makes no sense, that the actions of living beings must be some kind of affirmation of life. And so what he sees, I think, is that there's some expression of some part of themselves that the ascetic ideal sanctions or allows. For those who pursue wisdom or lovers of wisdom, like philosophy, the ascetic ideal turns out to have, I think, maybe a series of different historical opportunities for the expression of their philosophic urges themselves, some of which are just camouflage and protection that makes them look more respectable than they are or something like this, but some of which really uh, allow them to focus, well, to focus on the things that the, the philosophic pursuit that they care about most and to escape from the demands of other urges that they might have. So I think Nietzsche does indicate that historically uh, philosophy has gone together with a certain kind of restraint of, um, general bodily urges, I would say, urges of the belly. To throw in my f f uh, favorite kind of slight he gives in here is when he says that Kant philosophizes with the naivety of a countryside priest. Um, and that, but, you know, but the, the, someone who uh, writes so much about um, beauty sounds like he's never experienced it before. And that, that, and that in that sense, somehow the... Um, the the I said the ascetic ideal uh, is a hindrance uh, upon the person who's actually trying to get at some aspect of reality. Uh, you know who he contrasts with Stendhal as the um, 
who who knows what to experience beauty and then Schopenhauer is somewhere in between the two of them who of course uh uh you know inspires Wagner to write write his operas well you know the thing that uh i think nietzsche greatly blames kant for and and uh in a couple of places nietzsche goes so far as to say kant isn't really a philosopher um but the thing that i think Nietzsche blames Kant for here is that Kant conceives of the experience of beauty from the standpoint of the spectator. Uh, and he tries to envisage, I think, what something that has uh, an actual sort of tradition in German thought, the notion of an ideal spectator. I think it, it belongs to the discussion of the function of the chorus in Greek tragedy. Um, but Kant tries to describe the experience of beauty as being without interest. And I think Nietzsche thinks very clearly that being without interest is one and only one thing. It's being, uh, not being alive. <laughs> so that this, the Stendhalian picture of beauty both, I think, em embraces the standpoint of the creator who is very interested in what they create. Nietzsche points out, uh, what is it, the, the myth of Pygmalion as some indication that artists are not un, uninterested in their creations. Um, in some ways, their creations are their realities. But being interested in the beautiful is, I think, essential to being a living being experiencing the beautiful. And that's why Stendhal's formula that beauty is a promise of happiness seems to Nietzsche to be a much uh, more fruitful and accurate, I, I dare say, account, and I'll say accurate. I mean, there, here's a perspective that's better than the other. Uh, in some ways, I think Nietzsche wants to say the, the perspective of disinterested objectivity that Kant thinks goes together with rationality and seeing the truth Nietzsche wants to say that doesn't have any real possibility of being achieved. And if it could be achieved, you shouldn't want to. You'd make yourself a being uninterested in life itself. That's for also, I think, you know, one of the interesting things in, in Lisa's book, she takes a long uh, part of the discourse to try to describe a relationship, an evolutionary relationship between passion and reason. So that the thought that reason itself is different in kind from what we call feelings or passions, that that would be, again, one of the sort of consequences of not seeing cardinal differences in kind or fundamental um, oppositions in the world. And I, I think uh, Brad, has, Brad has a final question, but I just have to say that from that perspective, um, kind of at least contrary to the caricature that um, you know sets Nietzsche the the head of a um, kind of noble tradition heading through the the twentieth century. Um, that uh, you know I think I I have to think we probably sympathize with, but that I had not uh, necessarily thought of him being the kind of progenitor of. Wonderful, I. Um... I, I actually don't have a, a, a concrete final question, um, but perhaps what what do you think uh, is the takeaway 
um, for, for readers uh, from War Speak. Um, and if there is any any other wrap up or last thoughts you have about either the genealogy or, or War Speak, um, feel, feel free to, to offer those up as well. All right. Well, thank you for that uh, opportunity. Uh, maybe I'd say something modest to begin with. Uh, I think a very serious takeaway from War Speak is uh, go read the genealogy of morals and read it really carefully. Uh, that Lisa's presentation is selective in its detailed work, but it gives, I think, fine examples of the payoff of that kind of detailed work if you really do it. And there are many things in Nietzsche that are, um, because they don't present themselves as immediately technically difficult, that where it's easy to think uh, one understands what he means because it's ordinary language and it's not that important what he just said and I can move on to the places where he's making his real points. Uh, this This study really shows you, I think, careful art in, in Nietzsche and all sorts of unexpected tricks and all sorts of uh, real powers of interpretation that one has to bring to bear to, re to read Nietzsche well and reap the benefits. Now, that, that said, I'll say something entirely immodest. Um, so here's, here's the, the takeaway. Uh, we need to reevaluate all values. In a, in a way, uh, that is, if one takes very, if one takes fully seriously the potential consequences of continued subjugation of our thought to, to the influence of a world-hating position, one sees at the very least um, the diminution of human lives oriented this way, and. One understands, I think, from many examples that at least highlights, but there are many more that Nietzsche highlights, that the influence of this world denial is very pervasive. It influences the way we interpret almost everything. And in a way, it is the interpretive um, prism through which we see the world. For instance, in Beyond Good and Evil, I think the title refers to one kind of morality. But that, in Beyond Good and Evil, Nietzsche presents the opinion of the world we live in is that that kind of morality is the only thing that is morality. That is, we've, we've even lost the sense that there might be real alternatives. In order to get ourselves free from that, I think, even, either individually, and, which would be a big task, and collectively, which would be an immense task, we need real uh, recognition that things have been done to us that we would be better off if we could undo. And we have to start sort of taking, taking that to task. I mean, maybe as, as Nietzsche presented it in, in the gay science, after Buddha died, his shadow was still on the wall for years and years. And that's kind of Nietzsche's image of, that's actually the first place where he says God is dead. God is dead and the shadow of God is still on the wall. Well, that's, that's the problem. We don't want to, I think, if we want to live the best lives we can, and, and if we want uh, future generations to live better lives, we need to really address these sorts of things. 
Thank you very much. Um, once again, th this is War Speak, Nietzsche's Victory Over Nihilism by Lise von Boxel, with an introduction uh, from, from Michael Greinke. And it is available at, uh, from Political Animal Press, and I'll make sure we have the uh, links uh, to that down in the description below. Uh, but thank you very much, uh, listeners, and particularly thank you very much for, for, for joining us. I, I really... Um, Enjoyed and got a lot out of out of this discussion. Um, yeah, so so thank you for coming on to discuss this with us. Uh, also for for a beautiful introduction to to the work. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me. I, nice to meet you guys and talk with yes. you. Yes.